Welcome to the Bloody Broads Pod, where you're bloody broads. I'm Bhavna Sharma. And I'm Jamie Howard. We are your horror guides from page to screen and everything in between. This week, we are covering Scott Derrickson's Sinister. <laughs> this was one of the ones I think was on our list for since the beginning, since the inception of this pod. This was one we know we wanted to cover. Yeah, because... I remember getting it confused with Insidious at first because I love Insidious and I got really excited, which we are going to cover. Yes. But then you were like, yeah, it's Scott Derrickson. And I was like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't remember that version. Um, Yeah. Wow. This movie is heavy. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those movies where, again, my favorite kind, the kind that you can go back and watch over and over and over again and not lose the initial magic, but still pick up more things as you watch. I was going to say, it's almost like one of those uh, Richard Scary and last name was not a pun, books from like childhood with like the city of all the little animals and like everywhere you look, you could find a different detail. You know what I'm talking yes. about? Yeah. Yeah. There's that meme that's like the cat squisher uses his squisher to squish down his feelings or whatever. The <laughs> cat construction worker from the Richard Scary books. Anyways, yeah, it's it's like that or like a Where's Waldo of, I mean, I think not just horror tropes in a bad way, but just, I don't know, maybe like horror. Yeah, horror tropes is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. And with this one, this is maybe, I don't know, I lost count of how many times I've seen this movie. So when I watched it for the pod, it's not even like I was paying super close attention. Um, Because it's like, oh, yeah, that happens and that happens and that happens. But um, let's just let's just arbitrarily call it my 10th and 10th rewatch or something. Which if you guys know me and some of you that listen to this pod do know that that's just a small number. For a rewatch for something. I was I gonna like. say, I was like, that's pretty <laughs> low for what I'm used to you saying. Yeah, I mean, like this is something I've watched at least once a year since it's come out. Yeah, minimum. Um, but yeah, even during this rewatch, I picked up on a few little details that I was just like, oh yeah, oh how come I never noticed that before, and stuff like that. I guess because I was watching it with a slightly more critical eye, other than like, when are they gonna play those super scary videos? Okay, this is. L- a literal found footage movie. Yes. This is like, this is a found footage movie where like you got to see the other side and it wasn't just the footage. Right. Which I think is really interesting because you and I both love found footage, but I think the only other movie that's vaguely similar to this and set up might be Hell House LLC. Like parts of it are similar, kind of. Kind of, because they kind of like go behind the scenes, quote unquote. Every now and then. Yeah. I remember the first time seeing Hell House, which we'll cover, but I was confused. I was like, wait, is this actually a documentary? Yeah. Um, I mean, you watched it for the plot. I watched it for Ethan Hawke. You know, tomato, tomato. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, who's to say I wasn't watching it for Ethan Hawke, too? I... (laughs) So, as of this recording, I recently, last week, got to see a preview screening of the black phone which is another scott derrickson ethan hawk movie and i went back and watched sinister to record this and i was i was like oh yeah this is one of the ones where he doesn't take his shirt off because it's (laughs) in first reformed and he takes it off in 
spoilers, black phone. Uh, yeah, Bobby's got her hands on her face like Kevin McAllister. <laughs> uh, but I digress. Over fangirling aside, um, yes. this movie's opening, can we just talk about that? Because trigger warning right off the bat for suicide, or at least hanging. Because the yeah. first time I thought saw it, I was like, oh, it's ritual group suicide. And then you very quickly find out that's not the case. Yeah, I thought, okay, so when I first saw it, it terrified me. It still terrifies me because uh, filming things on Super 8 is just not natural. Um, (laughs) Super 8 film is just sinister. (laughs) and You should not use it. But um, it, it, it... Right off the bat, like you said, it just sets the tone right away. Like, I remember seeing this in theaters and going like, oh, oh, are we dealing with witches? Are we dealing with, like, some kind of demonic thing? Are we dealing with, like, a cult? What is going on? Because I didn't really watch too many trailers before this one. I was just like, oh, okay, another horror movie. Let's, you know, horror movie du jour. Let's go watch it, you know? So I didn't really dive too much into it beforehand. So the... When I say the opening terrified me, it fucking terrified me. Also, I'm jealous you saw this in theaters. I did not get to see this in theaters. And so I did get to see it at my parents' house uh, that has like this crazy great surround system because my dad also is a movie person. Um, But this beginning shook me so much. I had to like, Woosah for a second. I literally like little moths to breathe because we see the bodies and it's this immediate moment of, like you said, is this a demon? Is it witches? Is it ritualistic suicide? Like I thought. And then to learn right off the bat that this is a true crime within the world of the film that actually happened was, you know, no pun intended at all it was truly sinister I was like oh my god this is I just immediately think of the case of the young woman who you know drowned her kids in a bathtub um and we're not a true crime podcast so we're not going to rehash all the details of that but I do find it interesting to look back on you know 10 years now from when the first this movie first came out to look back on how the true crime complex industrial complex has evolved especially because in the movie Ethan Hawke's character is a true crime novelist and it was previously a male-dominated film film (laughs) a male-dominated field and then it became more popular to you know have female-led podcasts and shows and things like that and now we have conversations about how ethical is it to have a whole (laughs) true crime industrial complex like, I could probably give a TED Talk on that just on its own. That could be its own fucking episode because I have some issues with certain true crime podcasts out there. And Jamie knows my issues with these ones. And um, agrees. <laughs> uh, yeah, and agrees. I don't want to name it because uh, no. we're still babies in this industry and I'm not blacklisting us on anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I digress. But, uh, but the climate around 2012, like there was maybe only a handful of true crime Esque or true crime adjacent oopy spoopy um podcasts or any kind of like um indie creator content type stuff out there uh the only example i can think of off the top of my head that is still around is last podcast on the left but they don't just do true, true crime. crime they do right. a whole bunch of other stuff um but they do shine when they do true crime um 
and I and for the record, they're one of the ones that I think do it ethically. At least uh, they've always tried to, and they've only gotten better at doing it ethically. So if you do like true crime, this is not a paid ad. Check them out. <laughs> and for you know, for a dude run podcast, they're not annoying. So, right. well, <laughs> which is hard. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to be hypocritical because so many of mm-hmm. my TV, all of my TV roles, have been based on shows or storylines based on actual true life events specifically usually crime and murder and so it would be very disingenuous of me to be like oh you know the whole system is unethical and you know deserves to be dismantled i think there's a way to do it yeah you know to especially when it comes to bringing light to missing persons cases Uh, exactly there's definitely there's actually a few out there that i like that actually bring that are about missing people Mm-hmm. And missing women or missing um, trans individuals and people of color. Like, they, they, there's one that's actually focused in on that as well, which I actually do like. And that one actually is female-led. And they take a good – they're all – they handle it with care. Yeah. And, like, we're all humans. We're going to stumble. Like, the world of 2012 is not the world of 2022. And God, <laughs> do we know it. Like, but when it comes – but true crime is still true crime is still true crime. And I think um, – I'm not going to name names on the ones that I don't like, but there are definitely some out there that make it frivolous and make it sound as if it's a movie or a TV show or a music or a fandom when like, yeah. Okay. I've been fascinated with true crime since I could read, you know, some form of it. Yeah. But I'm also not out here making my bread and butter acting frivolous, talking about these things that happen to actual people. Well, and I think Ethan Hawke's character in the film started out that way. Like, we get to mm-hmm. see him as a younger man going on, like, talk show interviews and stuff. But then, and I really want to talk about this. Yeah. We find out later in the film, which it's alluded to in the beginning, and I knew right away, and you knew right away. But it's alluded yeah. to, and then we find out that they moved into the house where the crime occurred. And he lied about it, lied by omission. Honey, divorce, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, divorce, immediately no. Immediately. Honestly, if he did that, I would have been like, as soon as we're safe, I would have used him to get to safety. Yeah. And then I would have been like, oh, by the way, here are some papers. Get fucked. Never see me or my kids again. (laughs) Well, and it was worse because she, she was like, please tell me we didn't move into a house two doors down from the crime scene. And he goes... I promise. And as soon as he said that, I was like, bitch, it's because it's this house. It was this house. <laughs> that was the bit that fucking got me. I was just like, okay, okay. Because the audience kind of knew. Yeah. The audience knew that it was the house. And then, like, especially when Deputy So-and-so, actual character name, Deputy So-and-so, still his name in the second movie. He doesn't get a name. <laughs> I did not know that because I've really? never seen the second movie. Look it up on IMDb. He's well, I'm going to watch it as yeah. soon as we're recording. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, Sinister 2, not a bad sequel. Not as great as the first because you can't really recreate that knowledge, that magic because a lot of the magic for this movie, at least for me, is not knowing the connection. So once you know the connection between the crimes, it kind of loses its magic. Um, yeah. but not completely. So for it being like that, um, the second movie was not that bad. 
because now oh. you know, and now they can focus more on the kids, which is what the second movie focuses on. Oh, okay. Because see, oh, have I, you never seen it? I'm so sorry. I've never <laughs> seen the second one. Oh, okay. But that's not really a spoiler, but I wanted more. That was one of my big complaints about this movie. And it's the yeah. same thing that I complain about, unfortunately, with a lot of Scott Derrickson movies. I, or at least his horror stuff, I want more of the idea and less of the dialogue. Because yeah. here's my beef with Scott Derrickson films. And I feel like I'm going to get, I don't know if people are going to agree with me or not, but. Yeah. I don't know if his dialogue is like that on purpose or if it's like a semi parody. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's very earnest and it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's very Mayberry at some points. Uh, yeah. Sheriff in this film, he was like, unless I can convince you to pack up them boxes and leave town or whatever. <laughs> I did like the line that he had. I forgot what it was, but it's when he was talking to the sheriff initially and then he was just like oh fuck what was it it was so good and then because the sheriff quips back and he just goes oh that's a good line you should write it down um it's about he's like do you care more about something other than this yeah yeah basically it's like when i find they care too much it means they didn't care at all or something along those lines yeah and he's basically saying when i work with law enforcement what i usually find is that when they're telling me not to look into something or that i yeah. care too much about this it means they failed and like they don't care enough is essentially yeah. what you're saying yeah. and i do like the read we live for a good critique of the justice system yes. um especially the american justice system but yes. The rest of this dialogue is just so, like, for example, the demonologist that he calls in towards the end of the movie. It Vincent felt, D'Onofrio. Yes, I love him. <laughs> um, it felt very National Treasure. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. It's very Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, yes, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> The plot device, not the plot the device. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know Latin or that phrase, it just means like, and then God appeared. Yes. It's always been explained to me, especially at theater school, of just like, you know, growing up, they talked about how like in the Greek chorus, they would have somebody come down from like a lever from the ceiling, like on a platform, and it would be like, and then the heavens opened up, and everybody was fine. And that's exactly what it felt like when he was explaining, you know, you didn't just, oh, that's what the line was that it felt too cheesy for me. He was like, you didn't just... Uh, further along his agenda, you drove, or his timeline, you drove him to your new place or whatever. Like You put yourself in it. Yeah, that's what it is. You put yourself yeah. in the timeline. And I was like, sir, what? And for those who, who have not seen The Black Phone, this is not a spoiler, but the dialogue is very similar. And I, when I reviewed it, I said, you know, if you like Stranger Things season one and two, you're going to like The Black Phone. And people were very confused what I meant by that, but that's what I mean. Like, it's got the yeah. time setting, which I know it's the 80s and Stranger Things, but still. Um, like, I haven't seen the Black Phone, but I did hear Scott Derrickson specifically talk about the dialogue in yeah. Black Phone, which I'm pretty sure you also listened to. Yeah. Um, or he talked about it and he was just basically saying like, oh, I wrote it like how, you know, like I was a kid and like, I think it was Colorado he grew up in. And you can or tell. something. And I'm just like, okay, that makes sense. Like, I could see there being a disconnect then because we weren't kids in the 70s. Like, 
or the eighties, but like he, I, I'm from what I'm gathering from your review and from this movie is that he's, that's very similar in this as well. And my whole thing is like, you know, I like period pieces. I live for the seventies would love to be in like a seventies themed film TV show again, but it took me out of the moment a lot of times and it felt mm-hmm. a little soapy. Um, See, whereas that really worked in Doctor Strange, though. Correct. Because that Doctor really Strange, worked. Yeah, because Doctor Strange is a comic book character. <laughs> he's a comic book character, but he's also a sarcastic dick. Right. And I. So cheesy yeah. works. Yeah. Speaking of Scott Derrickson self inserting him <laughs> in the creative process, <laughs> can we talk about that for a second with his protagonists? <laughs> yeah. So I remember the first time I watched this film. I didn't know what the hell Scott Derrickson looked like. This was the first Scott Derrickson thing I watched. The first like Derrickson Cargill team up. Like this is the first one I watched. And I was like, all right, cool. That's just Ethan Hawk. Okay, cool. He's got a goatee and he looks very cozy and he's wearing glasses. Like, all right, cool. I get it. You're a writer. It's a vibe. You're like, you know, he's got little reading glasses that he perches on the end of his nose. Exactly. You're somewhere along the East coast somewhere. I get it. I get it. You got that East coast vibe going. I'm from the East, like, I'm essentially East Coast. We got this. Correct. Um, and then in later, you know, in my, like, all right, well, who, who, according to my research, who made this film? And <laughs> I look it up and I'm like, I saw his pictures. I'm like, are you kidding me? It, That's a look. Mary Sue. Yeah. <laughs> like, visually. <laughs> I'm like, that is a Mary Sue. And if anyone has seen Doctor Strange and you want to know what Scott Derrickson looks like, between a mix between Ethan Hawke and Benedict is Doctor Strange. Yeah, yeah, I'm putting the pieces together pretty much, and then also, you know, just in general, I think if a woman did that, she would be crucified. Like, are you kidding me? Oh, totally. I mean, we can't all be Greta Gerwig and just put ourselves in the movie. Right. Hey, hey, hey. We. I do love Greta. I do, I do too. I do too. I do too. But I'm just saying. <laughs> I know. I know. That's the whole thing. Where, you know, they keep telling us actors, if you, you know, you want to, you have to create what you want to see. Um, to be fair, Chris Evans put himself in his own movie. He did. He did. Although we can talk about his off. <laughs> yeah, we can, because it's not horror. So it's not relevant. It's not. Uh, but back to Mr. Hawk. Like I said, yes. Mr. Ethan Hawk is that boy for me in horror lately. Just in the last, like, five years, I think he's really come around in terms of... I've always thought he was an incredible actor, but seeing him in First Reformed, I was like... Dude, that movie. Yeah, that movie is incredible, and I see pieces of his performance in that that were foreshadowed in this, specifically when he's struggling with the alcohol and uh, the demons, because obviously he's a priest in First Reformed. Um, Yeah. I just think it's very interesting to watch the progression of an actor when they are in horror because you get to play with all of the colors in your in your paint box, so to speak, as an actor. Yeah. Like with comedy, you have to have this really slick delivery, I feel like, a lot of times, or a really dry delivery. And then with rom-coms, I feel like there's a certain look, there's a certain tone, you know. But with horror, you can just kind of <laughs> go insane uh shout out literally yeah shout out tony collette um queen (laughs) yes i feel like ethan hawk is to horror for 
men or I guess non-women as Tony Collette is for women currently. Correct. And I've never thought that until now. And now that you've said that, slight brain, you know. Yeah. They're like, they're like the, the king and queen. Yeah. Currently. Like they're royalty. And to add to royalty, Maya Hawk is also killing the game. Correct. Like all we need is Uma to get into this, oh. and we've got like a blended, we've got like a co-parenting family. I know, I know. Well, and what's so funny to me is that both Ethan and Tony have been allowed to age, and they both right? look incredible. Like it makes me so happy to see that and to see them use their whole range as a human. And I think that's why I keep coming back to both of their movies. Mm-hmm. And honestly, and I said this about the black phone, Ethan Hawke saved both of these movies for me. And not that I didn't, I like Sinister way more than I liked the black phone. And that's Fair. a personal taste. That's Fair. not, I think that has less to do with the movie itself and more to do with my personal taste. But yeah, the way that he shows his fatherly concern in this film was uh-huh. significantly more grounded than the actor who plays the mother. To me. Yes. Yeah, I feel like we got the whole gambit with Ethan. Like, we got uh, his emotions. We also understood why. And there was a lot of show-don't-tell, regardless of the dialogue. There was still a lot of show-don't-tell with him. And uh, we got to fill in the blanks a lot through little moments. Like, him watching his, his interview, for example. And then, like, him... Um, having to witness all that horrific stuff, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas with the mom, I feel like we're, we were kind of made to feel like she was an egg. Like she was supportive. We definitely got that. She was supportive with a capital S because, you know, like we got the kids to move here. We got like, you know, I'm about this. We got this. We got this, right? We got this. We have to get this. We got this. Like that was basically her vibe for like the first like half of her performance. But then it was just more like, as soon as she found out, I feel like a lot of her motivations got lost. Oh, 100%. Like, they weren't, that's when they started to become not realistic. And I love this movie as, like, straight up, I'm being honest, I do love this movie. I feel like it's a modern horror classic. It should be taught in film school, ETC, ETC, ETC. <laughs> However, <laughs> like, I would put this in a horror starter kit for, like, you know, the 2010s. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Hell, even the 2000s, I would put it in a horror starter kit. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, everybody but this woman was written right. Like, I really felt for the kids in this movie, right? Like, they mm-hmm. had my whole heart, the whole film. I was concerned for them, wanted to make sure they were okay. I was concerned for Ethan Hawke's character. I was really concerned for deputy so-and-so because I was like, sir, this is how you get sacked from the department. (laughs) Um, You know, snooping around in cases and things like that. But they really did not flush the mother out at all, in my opinion. Not at all. They didn't really give her any motivation aside from supporting her husband and supporting and taking care of the kids and dealing with all of that jazz. They really didn't give her too much besides that to deal with. And it was kind of disheartening to see. Like, I noticed that more and more on every rewatch because the first time you watch it, you're just like, move, lady, move. You're getting in the way of what's going on. Yeah. Right. 
which for better or for worse, that's just the vibe you get. And then the more you're watching it, you're like, okay, is your only purpose to be like questioning him? Which fair, he does need checks and balances because clearly he cannot take care of himself. You know, <laughs> making decisions like moving into a crime scene. Again, like a- <laughs> divorce. Like, I don't think I can overstate how quickly I would leave a partner for that. <laughs> Yeah, my favorite John Turturro quote, D-I-V-O, or architecturally it's Johnny Depp, but D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Yeah. Divorce. (laughs) Bye-bye. See you. Ta-ta. No thanks. (laughs) Yeet. Um, (laughs) I would yeet myself out of that house ASAP as soon as I found out it was a crime scene. No thank you. Like Um, having divorce court proceedings in the future. Sorry, continue. (laughs) The future of Judge Judy. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Um, but in general, in general, all the other characters were way more fleshed out than she was. Like, we got more personality out of the sheriff. We got way more personality out of Debbie so-and-so. Hell, even Vincent D'Onofrio as the expert, the occult dude. Yeah. We got a bit more of, like, a personality out of him. And that's not to say that she's a bad actor. I don't think she is. Oh, I just think you can only do so much with... Exactly. You can only do so much with what's written. Yeah. I mean, unless he gave her room on set to improv, which I don't think he's the type of director that would. I mean, I don't know him personally, but it's very interesting to me that they get specific motivations and her motivation is her children, which is fine because we do understand that instinct. It's just not interesting no, and she definitely gave me former career woman vibes. Correct. Yeah. I just we just did not know what they were or what it was. And in a way I'm glad it didn't cheapen her in the sense of like, I gave up X so that you could Y. Like I'm yeah. glad they didn't give us that kind of angle, but at the same time I would have liked to have known a little bit more about her. Does she show up in the sequel? Oh no. Okay. They're dead. Oh yeah. <laughs> they die. I completely Did you watch them? <laughs> I did. I'm so <laughs> Oh my god! Listen. The only the only person that shows up in Sinister Two from Sinister One is Deputy So and So. Okay, well, so, here was my thing. I didn't know if there were like flashbacks or how they were going to handle that. Like, okay. no, obviously, I'm not going to spoil number two for you. It's yeah. but Deputy So and So is involved, and it's a whole new cast of characters. Interesting. Okay, well, I, that makes me feel even stronger about what I liked and disliked about these characters. Uh, Before we touch on the children, though, I think it's about time for a commercial break. Hell yeah. And you guys know what's up. Stay tuned for some free thoughts. All right. So I really wanted to focus on the kids because something happens to them that gets thrown around a lot on psychology. TikTok is a buzzword, but that I feel very strongly about. Um, And the term itself is parentification. But in general, I think it was just sort of the definition of childhood trauma. That's what this movie is honestly about, clearly. Uh, But the way that children were parentified in terms of discussing the finances in front of them. I mean, right off the bat, one of the first scenes we get is we can't go out often because daddy's writing a book and we're saving money. You know, like right off the bat, we see that. Um, Things talking about like, you know, your dad lied to me. If you are sharing 
complaints about your spouse or your partner that you co-parent children with, you need to stop. Like if you're listening to this and do that, that's an absolute don't. Um, you know, I'm not a therapist, but I've auditioned to play one on TV, <laughs> but it's just, it's not healthy. It's definitely something that gets brought up in, uh, therapy circles a lot and psychology in general a lot. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but just if you're someone who's constantly discussing things with your like under 17 year old or even like under 15 year old, you know, maybe let's pause and think, hey, we shouldn't be discussing major life stressors with our children when they are adult conversations. Because if your child cannot do anything about the problem, if your child's too young to work and contribute to the bills, or if there is a problem between you and your partner and your child has nothing to do with it, the way you internalize that as a child is heavy and it will stick with you for the rest of your life. And I know you have thoughts on this as well. <laughs> Not to get personal on the main. But, Feel free. But um, I definitely have been on the children's side of this. And it's like, and it doesn't matter if the intentions are like, okay, we're trying to be honest with our children, like, I get that you're probably coming at it from that angle of like, well, it's better to be that than to lie and say, like, we don't have money or something or like, you know, be like, oh, not today, maybe in a few months, or maybe you get it for Christmas. But on the other hand, if your child is that young, like, I wouldn't say the boy, maybe, but like the girl, especially in this situation, like, so, so young. young, you don't do that. And like, I have definitely gotten overshares from my parents about things that have nothing to do with me and that have kind of messed me up for the rest of my life um that would probably take a lot of time to unpack and to this day has maybe affected one relationship I have with my parent with one parent and I have no interest in repairing that sorry but it's also like you guys done did this so don't act like yeah. nothing happened when you're when I'm an adult now and it's like oh well the ball's in your court it's like actually y'all did this <laughs> And what kills me is that, again, it comes from this place of trying to be honest. When in reality, the one time I'm going to be like, yeah, you should sugarcoat this is when you're talking to a child. <laughs> like, I feel very, very, very strongly about protecting children's innocence, Same. both emotionally and physically. Yep. And the fact that a lot of horror relies on, obviously, <laughs> losing innocence is one reason it's so impactful. But I think too, this is such a great lesson to be like, oh, hey, we shouldn't talk about this in front of our children. And it's interesting because he also goes on to talk about this other, you know, other serious life stuff, but he won't talk about what he's writing about. And like the mom's okay with bringing up the budget in front of the children, but she loses her shit when the little girl starts painting you know, the monster or the boogeyman on her wall. Right? Like, I'm like, can you please pick your battles here? Like, <laughs> which is it? Like, you know, because then then you get, then it makes Ethan Hawke kind of flipping out seem a little irrational when he's just like, we yeah. give you one rule. What's your rule? Blah, blah, blah. Right? And it's like, okay, but clearly this girl is being disturbed by some kind of force or something because how the hell would she know about, I think her name was Stephanie, the child. Like, how the hell would she know? 
if, you know, like logically they think, okay, well, she went into the office and therefore that spins it back on Ethan Hawke's fault. But at the same time, like, excuse me, you just told your kid that like you're struggling financially so we can't really go out for tacos or whatever. But like, you gotta eat spam sandwiches or some shit. But (laughs) it just makes no sense to me. Like the parenting in this movie honestly makes zero sense to me. Zero. First of all, it, it is absolutely on Ethan Hawke that he moves his own children into the house where a crime was committed. 100%. Although he, his excuse, you know, is, oh, it happened in the backyard, not in the house. Uh, second, it's 100% on the mother, which I hate that I'm blanking out on her name right now. Oh my God, same. To, I genuinely couldn't tell you if you were like threatening my life. Um, it's on the mother to not bring up emotional bullshit. And then I think, too, you know, the son is what, probably 12? I'd say middle school, yeah. So probably 12, 13, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, he is old enough, I think, to know that something happened there because he's going to find out, right? Like, kids are, middle school's hell. Like, little kids will pick on you for anything, but especially middle schoolers. Yeah. He's going to find out is that age. But it was very interesting to me that he was having night terrors. Mm-hmm. And I, I really want to get into more of the trauma aspect of this mm-hmm. because I think this movie does such a good job of illustrating to people who have never had night terrors what it's like. Because um, you and I have both had them. Yep. And it's that terrifying, literally. I didn't sleepwalk with mine. Did you sleepwalk with yours? Uh, no, but I got sleep paralysis with mine. I got horrific sleep paralysis. Like, saw one of those spiders from the original Jumanji, the Robin Williams Jumanji, mm-hmm. come down from the ceiling and, like, yo-yo in front of my face one time. Oh, I, it was oh, terrible. That would, ooh. I got the, uh, I got the man with the hat with the, <gasps> I think I've talked about this before, the man with the hat, but then he his body was very, like, cartoon inky scribbles. Scribbly. We've talked about that before. I forgot he was the hat man, though, because you and I have talked about this off-pod. We're gonna, we should do an episode, like, on urban legends and, like, urban... Yeah, and well, yeah. modern occult shit. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have a lot of things. Um, but I think, too, you know, when you have experienced a traumatic event, there's neural pathways that literally get rewired in your brain and so when people say like oh it's all in your head i'm like yeah that's kind of the point yeah and Um, i can't really escape my head guy (laughs) right and like your head drives the rest of your body um but it's very interesting to me how they illustrated one version of coping through the little girl and her art and then the other version of it being psychosomatic with the boy because when i get stressed out And when I'm having a panic attack, that's what happens to me. Like mentally, I'm like, I'm safe. I'm fine. I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. But physically, like I get every symptom, the shaking, the sweating, racing heart rate, you know, feeling of impending doom, which is super fun in 2022. Uh, Every day is that feeling, dude. Right. (laughs) But when he goes rigid out of the box in the first 15 minutes or so of this movie, I screamed the first time I saw this because I thought he was a demon. I was like, this is it. <laughs> that, you know, that was the perfect red herring, though, for this movie. Yeah. Because I, I remember the first time I was like, okay, cool. So we're going to follow the, the the boy child. Like, I 
forgot his name. The boy child. Uh, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> Trevor. 36 minutes into the pod, yeah. we remember. And the mother is name. Tracy. Tracy. Okay. I'm taking your word for Listen, that. Listen, the only name I remember from this movie is Deputy So-and-so. Same. <laughs> man um anyway but it's it's like i thought we were gonna follow the kid the boy uh, i thought we were gonna follow him and it was like okay cool 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 and then she starts painting demonic or whatever shit in the hallway and i'm like okay this is creepier because little girls are inherently super fucking creepy in horror movies boys are like and eh, you're just the antichrist you're fine but yes <laughs> I am very interested in what as well in um, the idea that this is how she processed the residual trauma of the house because that's how little girls are socialized versus how little boys are socialized. Uh, little boys are so socialized to be loud, rambunctious, scraping their knees, falling out of trees, whatever. And so his you know, manifesting as a physical symptom and little girls being socialized to be sweet, be put together, you know, all the stereotypes. Hers manifesting as an art form was very interesting to me. Um, I really liked her paintings and I was just like, oh no, what does this say about me? I was like, these are beautiful. Well, in the beginning they are. They are, yeah. Like when she's painting her room, I was like, oh, okay, that's really pretty. Are you sure you're like five? Like, because they were so well done. They looked amazing. Right? And then, and then you see her draw ghosts and Bagul's fucking little symbol. And I'm like, well, maybe not. <laughs> and here's something else. I was really disappointed that we didn't get more fleshing out of the demon. Mm-hmm. Because I felt that it really cheapened the ending to not have a little bit more fleshed out. You mean like his black, his backstory and stuff like yeah. that? Okay, yeah. 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 Which I know now that I know I'm going to watch the sequel right after we record this, maybe my thoughts will change. But like the shot of all the kids standing in the hallway at the end, I felt that was very insidious uh, two and three. And I love those movies, but they are camp. Yeah, they are. They're, but they're like horror. They're, they're horror camp. They're like, uh, what was the one we did? Um, Wow, why am I forgetting the name of the hottest movie of 2021? Um, James Wan. Malignant? <laughs> Malignant? Malignant, there we go. I wanted to keep <laughs> saying malevolent. The way that you were holding your hands and the fact that you called it the hottest movie of 2021 <laughs> was very much giving Stefan. Yes. <laughs> just like, Listen. I don't know what I'm trying to communicate right now. Malignant was the hottest movie of 2021. It has everything. It has everything. <laughs> it's got your twin brother absorbed into your skull. It's got <laughs> <laughs> spoilers for malignant. It's got magical, uh, magical fucking fighting powers. To know more, please listen to our episode. It's got chairs thrown across the room. Yeah, yeah. But to to have it be more fleshed out on one Google, I agree. Like I feel like we could have used Vincent D'Onofrio more. Uh, always. <laughs> but in true horror movie fashion, he rings in literally at the 11th hour when it's like, ah, shit, you probably needed this information an hour ago, right? 
I mean, because he does that in so many other movies, I kind of knew what was coming. Yeah. And I love him. I think he's a great, you know, actor and character actor. I just think he's wonderful. Um, he's a delight. Yeah, I was going to say delightful, so that's perfect. Just more more Vincent, please. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in true me fashion, I just read a lot into this film about what it means to live with the choices of your parents. Mm -hmm. And then how do you survive when those things will affect you for the rest of your life? And the fact that the kids die made this movie so heavy that I was like, wow. Well, I should say one of them dies. (laughs) One of them dies. The other one gets absorbed into the ether. (laughs) Yeah. The other one becomes part of the problem, which is also very poetic. They do expand upon that in the second one, which I kind of liked. Okay. Well, now I'm excited to (laughs) wrap this and go on. (laughs) Um, but yeah, this, I mean, outside of my critiques, emotionally, this movie connected so much with things that I dealt with in my childhood and how I grew up from that Mm -hmm. and grew up with that. And I think sort of the idea of, I mean, even alcoholism, you know, like just anytime there's an alcoholic parent, I'm going to be like, well, I'm in my feelings. Um, Like I didn't, I didn't expect to connect with this movie on that level either. And then I, when I watched it, I was like, oh, this is, not cool the movie was cool but the feelings were not cool because i mean i've definitely been there as someone that's had to like follow their parent or move along with their parent um because of their work and not even just like oh i got a new job but more like i believe in this opportunity and this is gonna bring us like riches and all this kind of stuff spoiler alert it fucking didn't but like we still had to move and i had to deal with some traumatic years which i don't think i'll ever have the time to unpack uh, we're getting real on the main guys, but I'm not laughing no. at you. I'm laughing at like, it's something I talk about with my therapist all the time that you can always live. You can always learn to live with something, but there's just some stuff that's, it's an acceptance. It's not a, it's a an acceptance. You put in a little box that you file away in your mind palace and you know exactly where it is at all times and you never go the fuck near it. And then you use it to scare all the other ghosts and save your <laughs> save your niece. Yeah. <laughs> or fight aliens if you're in Dreamcatcher. Um. Yeah. <laughs> all great stories. Yes. All great uh, films. Yes, but uh, to reel it back in a little bit, I was not expecting to connect on that level, especially because it's not the same. Like the parent involved in my situation was not an author, but they did. But they did have that same desperation of like. I believe in this opportunity so much that I will go to any lengths to make it happen. And guess what? You're all coming with me. Um, yeah. You know, a la, a la Jack in The Shining, in a sense. Wow. I actually never thought about doing a double feature with this in The Shining. But now that I think about it. Yeah. That needs to happen. Yeah. Because it's basically uh, the same thing. Different demons literally different but it's literally the same storyline now that you say that um making those connections yeah it's not it's not him killing them no but but it's still something somebody within the family was affected by this and in in jack's case so was danny you know to be fair danny just wasn't a murderer 
Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, as we discussed at length in part one and two yes. of those episodes, he definitely had the urges and then didn't listen to them. But yeah, but it's interesting to me that the little girl has the urges and then it goes full fledged axe murderer. It just makes me so happy to see a little girl <laughs> like fuck some people up. I don't know what that says about me as a person and I don't care to dig into Listen, it. I just like it. You'll get clarification in part two. Okay. Not on her, but okay. on the process in general. Noted, because I was a little confused, to be honest. My spoiler-free synopsis of Sinister 2 is that it focuses on the kids, whole different crop of people. Deputy so-and-so is involved in trying to stop whatever is going on. Okay, I'm sold. Uh, also, before I give you my closing thoughts, I have one final point, mm-hmm. is that the law enforcement in this film are very Mayberry. Um, as I said before, like uh, from... The Andy Griffith show. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Because all my references are like 100 years oh, old. but I got that reference um, once you said Andy Griffith. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, They're all very um, my way or the highway, and I get it. It's a small town. It's in, is it in North Carolina? Something like that. It's somewhere along that belt. Okay. I feel bad for not remembering when I just rewatched this movie for like the third time last I feel night. like it doesn't really matter where it is. You just know that it's on the East Coast somewhere. Small town, East Coast, pretty sure it's the Carolinas. Um, And it just, you know, that rang very true for me as someone from the South and from the East Coast of the South. And it was very interesting to me that those were almost Commedia dell'arte level stock characters. Yeah. Yeah. And... It was kind of like they, the funny thing is, is that they were still way more fleshed out than the mom, Correct. <laughs> which is hilarious, Correct. but like you did have, they were very cemented in their roles. Like the sheriff was very much like my way, like you said, my way or the highway, very like, these are the rules get fucked, you know? And then like, even on the <laughs> way out, he's just like, oh, I don't want it to, I don't want to read about townspeople running you out of town. Like please let me know if somebody actually did something, I'll take care of it because, you know, my reputation is more important than your family's safety, clearly. Like, yeah, you know, but then you had, you had so-and-so played by James Ransone, who I love yeah. and who played um, Eddie, it, grown up Eddie in the It movies. Yeah. It did not look like him. Sorry. Nope, I was that's, shook for a second. That's Eddie. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, the cast in this movie was very stacked, bro. Um, very. and apparently he's in the black phone for like two seconds or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he was great. But then you had him as very much the fanboy eager to do whatever he, you know, whatever he could, like the Gilligan of Gilligan's Island type. It <laughs> very much was. Very much was. The Gilligan to like, I don't know, Ethan Hawke's skipper. But like, yeah. But, you know, like it was it was um, they were way more fleshed out. And just on that note of the casting as like my final point before my final thoughts was just like the casting was great. Like Fred Thompson, a.k.a. former senator from Tennessee, Fred Thompson, a.k.a. former ADA. On Law and Order, like, yeah, like. ah, (laughs) So good. So good. Right. Uh, Rest in peace. This is like one of his final roles. I think it was like, I, uh, yeah. yeah. But like, excuse me, you got a powerhouse of a dude 
like who exudes like everything that a cab is all about <laughs> yeah truly yeah. standing right there and like he could have the funny thing is is when you realize who he is you realize he could have done a lot more with the character but it would have come across as a lot worse because that role wasn't as pivotal to the rest of the film it would have felt like chewing the scenery but for a film yeah but when he Uh, was able to get his little jabs in perfect so good like the like my favorite part my favorite interaction between him and um oswald was again the initial interaction and then he's like and then ethan hawk is just like oh so uh from that i take it that none of your department is at my disposal and he's just like oh look sometimes you do get something right (laughs) that kills me uh that was one of the ones that like again rang true for me like (laughs) the little between them fit yeah it was everything else that I was just like, this is so ham-handed. I don't know. I don't do well with, like, cheesy dialogue in a self-serious see, film. Yeah, see, you cheesy know? dialogue does well in movies like X. Correct. Right? D- Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Any of your Freddies. Any of your Jasons. Any what? of those. Yeah. Like, hell, even Candyman. Right. Or like Scream. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Scream. I know what you did last summer. Like, you know, uh, I hope you watch that. I hope you listen to that episode last last episode, guys. (laughs) Um, But, you know, shit like that. Sure. Okay, cool. But this, I would argue, is somewhere in the Venn diagram of camp and quote unquote elevated horror. Yeah. Like it's somewhere in that Venn diagram. Um. Because it's not technically Hackem Slashem. It's not technically Oopy Swoopy Ghosts or Oopy Swoopy Demons, even though that's what's used. It's not technically found footage. It's not technically any of these things, but it's all of these things all at once. There's even a, there's a few jump scares, but they're not true jump scares until the end. Oh, fuck. And I think that's what turned me off to... The first time I watched it, I was like, I don't know if I liked this. The second time I watched it, I was like, oh, I really like this. Yeah. And again, I've, I've liked it more every time I've watched it. Like yeah. you said, I found other things to get into. But that is kind of my closing, you know, getting to the end of my thoughts moment where I was like, overall, this is a very successful horror film, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's scary. It has multiple subgenre elements, stacked cast, great lore behind it. We love a good demon. Um, that's not an invitation to a demon. It's just, I like the concept in movies. <laughs> um, it's something that I think, like you said, we could send to directors and be like, all right, here's elements that you should steal from. Here's what you should copy. If you're going to do this kind of film. Yeah. Again, this is my personal taste. I'm never going to be like, do you know what really hit home with me in that Scott Derrickson film? The dialogue. Like, it just doesn't do it for me. It does not do it for me. And sorry, I, Cargill. I'm, I'm so sorry, my dude. Like, your story itself is so good. So good. But I just can't handle the dialogue. Like, I don't know what it is. And it's in every movie that he directs too. I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, well, cause he does his team up is usually with, uh, Robert Cargo. Like yeah, they're the, yeah. And I, 
I see where he's coming from. I do Cargill. Not for me, not my flavor. That's fair. Um, again, it comes across as very, uh, the conjuring insidious, that kind of self-serious. I can't tell if you're doing this on purpose. Yeah. Thing. But less camp. Correct. Yeah. A little less camp. Yeah. So final takeaways. I think this is probably one of the best movies to illustrate sort of a parent allowing an emotional demon and a literal demon, but especially an emotional one. If we're taking this as a allegory, what happens when you allow that to overcome your relationships, especially with your children? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this was as successful as say a Dr. Sleep or a shining. Yeah. But I think that's an unfair comparison. It is because they're two different vibes right yeah yeah and also it's stephen king <laughs> i mean i wasn't even go there <laughs> yeah uh but i say all that to say it's a good time mm-hmm. you should watch it if you've never seen mm-hmm. it apparently i need to go watch the sequel which i'm gonna do right after we hang up yes please do i want um, your thoughts on it immediately. yeah i i love a good cult vibe and it seems like that's it's like a demonic cult yeah. Overall, sound editing, incredible. We didn't really touch on that, but the sound, the music, perfect. The use of, you know, a Super 8, incredible. Um, God, I love it so much. Shame, because it's so uh, terrifying. It's horrifying. And, yeah, I'm going to give this movie, like, a three and a half out of five, personally, just because of things that were not my personal taste. I don't think they were the fault of anybody. It's just what wasn't my vibe. That's fair. That's a fair way to look at it. Um, my final thoughts are, I agree with most of what you were saying, pretty much everything you were saying. Um, but personally, this is in my taste, so I will rank it a little bit higher. Um, yeah. But what I definitely like about this movie is that it was the first movie of the 2010s. I would say like it was a good movie in about a good decade before this one came out that actually scared me. Cause even the insidious is like, they relied heavily on jump scares to terrify me or makeup to terrify me, but not actually like, it, and it's just a momentary like, huh? It's not so much that feeling of dread that this movie kind of instilled in me from the first frame. Yeah. Like this movie actually had me terrified. It had me guessing. It had me all over the map which I appreciated uh, because my thing that I've been saying since like the beginning of time, at least for me, is that I just want to be scared. I want a horror movie to scare me. There's an open challenge to all of you creators out there. Just fucking scare me. Like I appreciate the laughs in between, but please give me a nightmare. I am begging for a nightmare. Um, And this movie came quite close. Like I, wasn't as scared of the actual demon aspect it was more so what was happening to the family like i did care more about them uh what i will say though is the dialogue is a little eh, eh, but it does make up for it with everything else oh correct yeah like everything else kind of makes up for it the staff uh, the staff wow the staff who are also (laughs) the cast they're great um i was like the staff Listen, I've got Invisalign in, guys, so like my natural lisp is now enhanced. So I have to Listen, be careful on how I speak. Yeah. 
the peek behind the curtain. <laughs> the peek behind the curtain. So like my list that normally I have a good grasp on, I don't with this stuff in. With this hunk of, hunk of plastic. But basically what I'm saying is the cast were fucking stacked and they all understood the assignment more or less. Yeah. And yeah, I just really liked, I really liked this film. I will probably give it about a four out of five. And I definitely think this is something that like, let's say somebody's coming up to you and they're like, uh, oh, horror is so cheesy. Or like, uh, oh, horror doesn't really scare me. Like, uh, you guys just oh, like go on like blood and guts and fuck horror. Cause you know, because you don't need brain cells for horror. Like, I don't know. You guys are fans. You know, you know, you definitely have at least one person in your life that once you go like, I like horror, they go, oh, yeah, I'm going to go watch this Judd Apatow movie. No shade to Judd Apatow. <laughs> I was like, Bum! absolutely none. Absolutely none. I find his movies hilarious, but I'm just saying don't shit on one if you're not going to shit on them all. Yeah. I would definitely suggest this movie for someone to watch. Like this is definitely in my like starter pack for horror for anyone. Like if they're like, okay, well, I don't know what's good. I'm like, here, let me just slide this across the table. And you know, you brought up something that I did forget to talk about and I don't want to get off on a tangent on Mm. it, but this movie was, it did have a true feeling of dread. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's important to mention is that, you know, with our constantly bringing up our version of definition of horror, this accomplishes that by a landslide. Um, Even with the jump scare at the end, that's just for fun. It gives you that dread. It gives you that anxiety because you don't know what's going to happen. And again, like we said, with that red herring with with the little boy, like you don't know. So literally you, if, if you have ADHD, you know how to follow this movie because it's just like, ha, ha. It's all over the place. place, But like the funny thing is it's all over the place, but in such an intelligent way. And they lay the breadcrumbs so well that you'll get it on your second viewing. Like after you wash it, like how the fuck did I miss all of that? It's like, I know. So great. So good. Well guys, that brings us to the end of our episode this week. We just want to say thank you so much for listening. Also for our Patreons that have been supporting us. Uh, if you would like to mosey on over there, the link gets posted on our Twitter all the time, which you can find us on all socials as at bloody broads pod. You can even drop us a note at bloody broads pod at gmail.com. If you have uh, a bad review, leave it in a five star review. And we might read it on air. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next episode, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.